0: Zechariah chapter 14 tonight, take your Bibles and turn there. We'll get right to it tonight, so go ahead and stand with me if you would as we read the entirety of the chapter. It's a longer chapter, um, but really it's a conclusionary thought, so I just thought we'd take it all together, have just a really a a simple devotional thought at the end of the explaining of the reading. And so, who knows, we might get out early. But don't don't count on that. Zechariah chapter 14, verse number 1. Behold, the day the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, speaking of Jerusalem, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle the city, and shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall be cut off from the city." So, a really bleak picture for Israel here, or Jerusalem. God intends to gather nations around them. There will be a time of decimation. There's some really horrible things that happen. But then the Lord will choose to fight for Israel. And so now we have a different perspective of the Lord beginning in verse number 3. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when He fought in the day of battle. And His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west. And there shall be a very great valley, um, and half of the mountain shall remove towards the north, and half of it towards the south. That's an incredible seismic event. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal, yea, even unto the... I guess I should get my fingernail where I could read this shall reach the valley of Azal, and yea, shall uh, the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, like the, the, those days, and the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear, that word's fascinating in the Hebrew, nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light." we have a new kind of light be described in this event. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them towards the former sea, and half of them towards the hinder sea, in summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day, shall there be one Lord, and His name one. All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimnon, south of Jerusalem, and that shall be lifted up, and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate and to the place of the first gate and to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel and to the king's wine presses and men shall dwell in it and there shall be no more utter destruction but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited and this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem and so now he's there's been a little uh, caveat here. Now he goes back to where his thought was in verse number 3. Their flesh shall be consumed away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. And it shall be come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them, and speak of the armies around them, and they shall lay hold every one of the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hands of his neighbor. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. And so shall the plague of the horse and the mule and the camel and of the ass and all the beasts that shall be in those tents as this plague. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem Jerusalem, shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso shall not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that cometh not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt. And the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And in that day shall there be upon the bells unto the horses holiness unto the Lord. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. In other words, everything will be holy in that day. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take them and seed therein. And in that day there shall be no more of Canaanite in the house of the Lord, of hosts. Our Heavenly Father, I pray the next few moments that, Lord, you may help us to find the broad intent of this text, Lord, to uh, not just imagine that great day, because, Lord, these events are extraordinary. They are amazing. But, Lord, help us to also live in light of that day. Lord, being mindful that these realities are coming, Lord, to our planet, and that we need to live in light of them. So, I ask for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. Zechariah chapter 14 concludes both this apocalyptic section of his letter, which began in chapter 12, but it also brings the conclusion of the entire letter. The theme of the entire book, really, if I could distill it this way, was to call this post exile community of Jewish believers who were spent 70 years in Babylon, now under Persian control, Babylon having been destroyed. And coming back now for numbers of years to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, and to attempt to rebuild the nation, the theme of the book is really to call this community of believers back into the covenant relationship that they once knew with God. And the minor prophets continually call people, refer people back, really to Deuteronomy chapter eight. And this is this place where you know God makes this great promise to Israel. That I will be your God and you will be my people. It's, it's, it's uh, Hashim. We've talked about this the idea of, of a covenant relationship, an intimate knowing of God and God knowing these people. And that if you would serve me and you would know me, you'd be the head and not the tail. You'd be the lender, not the borrower. And I will bless you among all the nations of the earth. But if you forsake this covenant, if you do not serve me, well, well, then you would be the tailor, not the head. You, you would be the borrower, not the lender. And, and in time, you, you will find yourselves even acting more abhorrently than, than even the, the Canaanites, which I intend for you to displace, uh, displace one day. And so, Zechariah, along with Haggai, and Jeremiah before him, before the exile, is calling this people, saying, now God's brought you back, so act like His people. Love the Lord. Um, remove idolatry. Re, re, you know, act like... Um, live righteously with each other. Treat each other with respect and courtesy, and don't take advantage of of the vulnerable of the population. Um, Have a repentant heart. Um, Understand what God has done for you and what He's bringing you back to and the blessings He intends to give you one day. And that's really the theme is live in light of the fact that God wants you to be involved with Him again and and, and give up those things that, that took you into captivity in the first place. And then secondly, there's another subtheme here, and, and, and this thought was this, there was, there was this countering of their, um, the questions that the people round about Zechariah continually ask him. Uh, this question was this, and we really see this in, in lots of the minor prophets, but especially in Zechariah, is people come to Zechariah and say, hey... God's brought us back from, from Babylon, Persia. We're, we're here toiling in the city. We're, 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 we're breaking our back to build the temple. When is God going to set up His Millennial Kingdom? When is God going to do what He said He's going to do? When, when is God going to establish His throne and subdue the nations round about Israel and exalt us in all the world? There's this question that they keep asking Zechariah. In this sub-theme, um, you know, it's really a response to Zechariah to turn that question way back on them. And so this text kind of ties this idea of serve the Lord and this question these people have. And so he says, there's a new way of thinking that you should have. There's really a different question you should be asking. Instead of asking, when will God come and set up his throne? The prophet inquires the people, when will you be ready for him to come back? when will you be the kind of people that He can come back and bless? He said, so You just want God to do His part, and He will. You know, He's a God who cannot lie. But here's the question, God's already made His promises to you. He's already promised you that He will bless you. You keep asking me when God's going to do His part. I'm, I'm looking at you and I'm asking you, when are you going to do yours? When are you going to be the people that God can bless? When are you going to serve God? When are you going to set aside idolatry? When are you going to treat people with the love and grace that He's told you to treat them? When are you going to stop allowing bad leadership to calmly take you in a bad direction? When are you actually going to allow God to enthrone your life? Because then when you do that finally, you may find that He'll come and enthrone Israel. And so He really casts this burden back upon them. You want God to come back? Well, He, he, he is. He wants to. He, and He will one day. But the larger thing that's really in question now is not His return, but your behavior and conduct. What about your heart? And, and what's sad, the one sad note about this question, this counter question of Zechariah, is that people really never answer it. They never respond. They just kind of go like, huh? And, and they just continue, really to the day of Christ. When's the Messiah going to come? When's the Messiah going to come? And they never really shoulder the responsibility of being the people you know, that God can bless. And so um, the Jews rightly understood in their expectations that God would come back and that one day he would manifest his sovereignty on this world, he would manifest his omnipotence, and that he had plans to come again and that nothing could thwart that. And that's how this passage sort of ends in Zechariah 14 is that um, the Creator God comes in chapter 14, despite uh, really, their unwillingness to change their hearts completely—it'll happen one day, through a supernatural work of God. But He's going to reassert Himself in a manifest physical presence on this earth, and that's really what's being declared in Zechariah 14. And in so doing, when when God comes back, there's going to be a reordering. There's going to be a, a cataclysmic, cosmic change uh, in Jerusalem, in the lands round about it on the earth, and really in the cosmos, which we'll talk about in a moment. There's just going to be a a change. When God comes back to take His throne, the world will be totally different. So, they understood that was going to happen. But what they were slow to grasp again was what God desired for them to do while they were waiting. So, they had this question, you know, when are going to come back? And he says, well, when are you going to be people that can come back? And so, Zechariah continually encourages them, listen, God's going to come back when He's going to come back. What's really relevant is, how are you going to conduct yourselves between now and that time? In other words, if you embrace the covenant, if you embrace the relationship of God, well, He'll bless you between now and that coming. You can have the privilege of playing part in God's great scheme and plan. Or, as described in verses 1 and 2, um, God's going to come back, when He's going to come back. But if you won't serve Him, well, then you're going to continue to suffer the indignation that's described in verses 1 and 2 throughout your history. And unfortunately, that's what Israel has really chosen to do through their long history. And so, um, God was saying, you know, in His mind, I'm going to come back when I come back. But if you're really, really worried about that time, well, then be concerned about how you live today so that when I show up, you can be blessed. Instead of spending all your time as you have been doing... These last centuries being corrected. And so, chapters 12 and 13, as we're approaching this apocalyptic end and approach of Christ, um, Zechariah talks about that day. You keep asking me about that day? Well, let me tell you about that day. There's going to come a day when God's going to bless the nation and He's going to bless the people and He's going to come back to this planet and He's going to set up a throne in Jerusalem in that day. It's the day that you all are hoping for. And it's a day that I'm going to come and manifest even if you never live for me. But, if you're asking, until that day, I I expect you to serve me, do your part until I come, repent and restore a relationship with me." And then God in chapter 13 details, you know, the way He would deal with them if they won't. That was really last week's discussion. If if you won't get right, then I'm going to, you're going to be like a sheep that I'm going to scatter. Then after I scatter you, I'm going to discipline you. Then after I discipline you, then you'll probably come to the place of repentance. And so, you know, this is the road they keep continually choosing to travel. And, and then he ends it there and begins chapter 14. So very quickly, I just want to work through this chapter. I won't go in detail, but a very quick overview, and just have a very simple application at the end. So look with me at verses 1 and 2. And verses 1 and 2, as I've already mentioned, really speak of how God is interacting with His wayward people. Um, Historically, we really don't know if this is referring to a specific time and event. This could be referring perhaps to the way God dealt with them before the Babylonian captivity, um, because certainly what's described in verses 1 and 2 happened when Babylon came and destroyed uh, Jerusalem. But it seems to imply that this event will occur in a future day in Jerusalem. But the point is this, here's a people waiting for God to come, and yet He's still having to discipline, discipline them through the nations around them. So, verses 1 and 2 are really about God saying, you know, once again I'm going to gather the nations around Jerusalem, they are are going to defile you one more time, your women are going to be defiled, your homes are going to be taken, your people are going to be scattered, it's going to be a horrible time all over again. And really I'm the one gathering these people because I I want you to repent, I want you to turn to me. Verse 2 speaks of the city once again, falling into captivity, and uh, again, we're not sure when this is happening, but the point, the principle is this, is that discipline comes when people don't follow God. So, the, the real, there is a larger teaching in terms of eschatology about the end, that Israel one day will be surrounded by all the nations of the earth. And we, of course, understand this at the end of the tribulation as the great battle of Armageddon. And this very well could be referring to that particular event. And we know that that time concludes with Jesus coming back at the very end. We're in the midst of that battle to destroy all the nations that are fighting Israel. And we see this really begin in verse number 3. And so many really see the remainder of verses as a as a has picture of future eschatology, of events that are probably occurring to the Tribulation event that we are discussing in the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings. But we see God now not directing His attention to this nation of people that won't serve Him. Now God stops and says, okay, I've done what I can here. Now He gives His attention to the nations surrounding Israel and um, He will take care of them next. So, in verse 3 onward, God punishes and destroys these nations for their part in continually plaguing and thwarting His people. So, verse 3 begins with the word then or after. And the Bible says that God Himself now, this is the manifest presence of God, God Himself will go forth and fight for Israel. Now, the language here is not metaphorical as we have seen in some of the other minor, minor prophets. The language here is very much like what we studied in Revelation chapter 11. It seems to be very descriptive. It, it's, it's a very literal uh, interpretation here that God's going to see this battle. He's, he's really disciplined His nation while He's going to. Now He comes in and He asserts Himself bodily and physically in the second advent, we call the Eschaton, into the world and begins to fight for Israel. And uh, so Jesus returns here bodily to the Holy Land And verse 4 says that when He comes in the sky, that He's going to touch down in uh, Jerusalem, or really just right outside the walls of Jerusalem. And He's going to return to the Holy Land, and His feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. Now, we're all familiar with the Mount of Olives. We've heard it talked about. um, And so, the way the Mount of Olives work is the city of Israel um, kind of is, for the most part, eastward-facing. And so, the city is here. And it rests on a mountain from the Old Testament called Mount Moriah. It's a mountain that's kind of like a big sloping hill. And the city of Jerusalem just kind of envelopes over the top of this whole hill. And then the city kind of slopes down towards the eastern gate. And this is the gate that Jesus Christ is going to come through one day. So, the, the city of Jerusalem is like here and it kind of slopes down. And then when it comes back up again like this, this is the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just right across from the city of Jerusalem. Uh, currently, it's filled with graves. Um, there are thousands and thousands of Muslim graves there. They've been somewhat intentionally placed there because, in their thinking, you know, a Jewish prophet can't come back and play, put his foot on uh, you know Islamic holy site, but he will. And uh, and they've actually walled up the Eastern Wall because they, they understand that Jesus is supposed to walk through that. Um, for a God who's omnipotent, taking out the bricks of that wall will not be problematic. But what's described here is Jesus coming back, and of course the whole world's going to see this and know this. But he's going to come down and he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. And when he does, there's going to be, as there are a lot of uh, in the end time, another earthquake. But this earthquake is 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 different. This earthquake divides the land. So what we have happening now is when Jesus comes, um, the, the Mount of Olives is here on the east, Jerusalem just a little bit west. And was, there's a great valley or a rift that occurs north and south this way. So, Jesus touches down. Armies are surrounding this. You know, we have the, the, in the Valley of Armageddon not too far away. This, this land just split. And now we have this huge valley created in this time. And there's a, a lot I could say about that and how this will cleanse the Dead Sea. A lot of cool stuff there, but the point for the text is this. He comes and there's this incredible... Uh, Earthquake that creates a brand new valley, and so this chasm that's created between the mount and the city is a rift, and this will serve as a little bit of an announcement that Christ has arrived. Um, But its real intent is also to provide for these embattled people in the city who've now been halfway decimated a means of escape. And I don't exactly understand. The Bible gives some ideas here. Trying to really figure this out is difficult, but it's really provided a means of escape for the people to to move out of the city and for them to be temporarily uh, protected. And uh, in the text says that he will return, this is a fascinating phrase, with his saints. Okay, so there's some discussion and debate about what, you know, who those saints are. And some people believe that when Jesus returns, you know, he'll bring this angelic army with him. But most likely, what that's referring to—and this is one of my favorite things—is that that means that he's going to be coming back with you and me. And so when Jesus comes back at the Ascension, the Second Advent, to come down and set his foot on the Mount of Olives, this is where I'm going to be riding my famous white horse, be six foot two, and all those things, (laughs) whatever the glorified body looks like—not like this one—and we'll be coming with him. You know, it's an opinion; it's not explicitly stated. But you know, I believe this is a reference to the church, the glorified church coming back with Christ. Um, you know I'm not sure that we'll be doing any real fighting, but we'll get to watch it. And uh, I think I'll be pretty excited about that. And so anyway, um, the saints will be with Him. It will be, it'll be amazing. And, uh, and so in verse 6, uh, this is fascinating. The Bible says it will come to pass that at that time, that the light as we know it is going to cease. The word there in verse 6 for light stopping means to congeal. So, I'm not really sure all that that implies, but what it does mean is that this, the history of humanity as we know it has been from the days of Genesis 1 have been governed by a, a cosmic cycle that God has put in place, where you know, we're in, a, we're in a solar system within a galaxy, within the universe, and that our planet, you know, goes around the sun, and the light we know is a result of the sun's light, and the, the light we know at night is a result of the moon and the stars. But whatever is going to happen at this point is God's going to take all that light and congeal it. It's like he said, I'm going to take it back to the pre or the primordial days when there was no light. And he says this really interesting phrase, and in the evening." or the time that you'd expect the evening to be, when you expect it to get dark, there's going to be a new light. And the new light's not going to be a new sun, a new moon, and a new stars. The new light is going to be Christ Himself. The very Shekinah glory of God will be in Christ, is Christ, and He will be the light. And I don't know how that works, but it's really neat. And he will be the light. So it's like God saying, We are starting over. And of course, there's kind of like two endings to the world. There's the Eschaton when Christ comes back, and then there's the thousand year reign, and then where it's really consummated at the end. But the Lord, just, the idea is that his presence upon this earth, when he finally comes back, um, Christ and all his grace. And beauty and humility. The first time was wonderful, but this next time He comes back, He's coming back as when no one's going to question that He's God. Like, it's going to be evident and obvious. So, it's like a re-return to creation. God is taking us back to zero. And um, there's this idea that we'll see again, that's rehearsed in 1 Peter 3, that in those days... Um, let me just read this because there is a reference to here just a moment, and that way we already have this in our mind when I get there. Uh, and I've, I've referenced this several times in our study of Revelation, but in Second Peter chapter 3 it says, "...the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but His long-suffering towards us. us word not one that any should perish, but that all should come in repentance. But the day of the Lord," the same phrase used uses in Zechariah, "...will come as a thief in the night, or unexpectedly, quickly, in which the heavens shall pass away, congealed." they're going to be gone with a great noise. And the elements shall melt with the fervent heat. Okay? It's called fusion. When you take elements, atoms, and you break their bonds, you know what that makes? Energy. You know how we experience energy? Heat. So what God is saying, there's going to come a day when He's going to take apart the atoms of the universe. And when He does that, it's going to get really hot. You know, Okay, that's fun to me. I don't, <laughs> I'm a chemistry guy. That's pretty cool. You break molecular bonds and you get a fervent heat. Okay, that's biblical, way before they understood that. So, anyway, anyway, science existed way before, um, you know, the modern guys got it. But this is what happens. And so, the shall pass with the great noise, the element shall melt with a fervent heat, and the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And this is the phrase I keep rehearsing, seeing then that these things shall be dissolved, congealed, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holiness of conversation, looking forward and hastening to the coming day of, of God, wherein the heavens being on fire." What a, an amazing thing. For well, the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. So, we see a picture of this in Zechariah, the same language that's rehearsed for us in the New Testament in Peter, and also we'll see in the book of Revelation. And uh, so the point is all this so when God comes back in this cataclysmic event, uh, the world's going to see it and the universe is going to know it. And it's going to be redone. The light of the moon, sun, the stars will all abate in his presence, and God will become the light of the world. In verse 8, this is fascinating. And this chapter's got a lot of neat stuff in it. So the, the great valley is made. Um, he becomes the light. And the next thing that happened is uh, um, this river you know, comes bursting out somewhere of the city of Jerusalem and begins to flow out of it. Israel's in the Middle East. There's never been an abundance of water. They've always had to depend on the latter and early rains, but that's done now. That's all done. God's back. And so a, a perpetual river of life flows out of Jerusalem. And it talks about going north and south, but the idea is it just, it just flows to the world. This is the, this is the source of life for the world in a way. It's a figured way of, of, of saying that. So a river, it's not affected by winter and summer, flows out of Jerusalem. And that's not all. In this cataclysmic earthquake and the making of the valley, you know, when you push things down um, in terms of plate tectonics, guess what? Other things have to go up. So the valley is made, and guess what goes up? The city of Jerusalem goes up. And so literally, the city of Jerusalem somehow becomes, it's, it's on the Mount Moriah now. It's going to become a real mountain one day. And so this, this, this Jerusalem is elevated, you know, uh, up into, the, into the, you know, the earth sky in some kind of grand and epic way. It's now the new epicenter of the universe, the place where the creator God is going to rule and reign for a thousand years. And then it says all the area around Jerusalem has made a plain. God's going to flatten the land so the nations of the earth can have easy access to come up to the mountain and worship God going forward. It's, just kind, of, it's kind of like this God's, it's like a picture of Eden again, recreating, restarting, elevating Jerusalem, making a way for the nations to come to Him. It's an omnipotent transformation and display of God's power. It's a time when Jesus will finally assert His Lordship over the world and the cosmos. The world will finally truly recognize and pay tribute to Him. And they all do, and they will. They will see Him as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And verse 10 describes more transformative events upon the earth. Again, Jerusalem is lifted up. It will be restored to its historic boundaries once again. And then it talks about the safety of Jerusalem. There will be no more forever again harm that comes to the city. It will be, it'll be a place of safety and security that will be unceasing. Okay, all that's cool. Um, and then verse 12. So, verse 1-2, I'm going to discipline the nations, or th- my nation. Then God says, I'm going to come back. When I come back it's going to be like this. And then He goes back to verse 3, now here's how I'm going to war against the nations. And this is equally descriptive and graphic. Um, could have saved it for la- next week, but we'll just press on. Um, this description is of the consuming power of Christ, towards God's enemies. And the power of Christ will be unleashed in such a way that his enemies it's called a plague. I don't know how this manifests itself. But um, when God says, you're defeated," men are consumed. Consumed. Um, you know, it's what we kind of think of we think of atomic blast, you know, just poof, incinerated. Evidently not all of them, um, because some are going to respond to this in utter confusion. But the enemies of God are going to be, best word, incinerated, consumed. Um, it's going to create mass confusion among those left in the valley of Armageddon. They're going to turn each other in this utter confusion not knowing who's fighting who or where this is coming from, it's going to be an utter decimation of the names of God. And then verse 14 seems to intimate that uh, Judah will come and fight along with God. And not only this is people returning back to the valley, I don't know, you know the specific reverence here, but evidently God's people, as I've said, are going to understand who He is this time in our state of Revelation, and they're going to come back and they're going to engage in the battle. And then they're going to take this incredible spoil from what's left from these armies. And verse 16 seems to usher us forward then into the Millennial Kingdom. Like, <laughs> well, all that happened. And, and then now all the nations of the world begin coming to pay tribute to God, to come to Jerusalem on a year-by-year basis. It mentions, you know, engaging in the Feast of Tabernacles, but the larger thought generally is that they're just going to come back and they're going to worship God. They're, they're going to recognize his lordship. And now we're moving on to the millennial kingdom, and uh, they're going to honor him. But we know this in our study of the Bible that the millennial kingdom starts out um, with us being there, and those who are saved through the tribulation are rushing to that, and things start out great. And we don't know what the time span is, but this thousand year time goes. And at some point in this, the devil's loosed again, and people begin to rebel against God one last final time. And so God seems to intimate in this text that there'll become a time, even in millennial reign, where people won't come and honor him anymore. And so, um, they're not gonna get rain. And I'll come back to use as a metaphor in a moment. Um, He's gonna punish them by not allowing the land from which they come from to receive rain. Um, and, And so, They're going to suffer that for their their indignity, not paying homage to Christ. Um, So they receive no rain, And then, of course, we know, though, that ends with the great white throne. And we go into eternity. Verse 20 reflects, again, upon Christ's entry into the world. This this text just kind of of goes back and forth. And the idea is this. When Christ comes back, there's no clean and unclean. The horse was traditionally an unclean animal, but even the horses that are unclean are going to have holiness unto the Lord on them. The vessels that you had to be very specific to worship God, it's not going to matter because just anyone can come worship God. You don't need special utensils. They're not, the temple's not here. You don't need that. The idea is that the Lord's here, and everyone can come and worship him. It's, it's a huge text. It's pretty amazing, and we could talk about each individual part, but. Um, Um, that'll be enough. In its original context, okay, in its original context, who's he talking to? He's talking to a group of people who've come back from captivity. They're in the midst of toil and struggle. They're not like certain about their future. And Zacharias is telling them, hey, be right with God and he'll bless you. Do what's right. And let me show you a glimpse to the future. This is what awaits this holy city that you're working on right now. Don't, don't, don't hesitate to be a part of this. Don't grow weary. Don't stop. This ground you're standing on, the Messiah's going to come back right over there. And, and he's going to split this thing wide open. And this ground that you're on working on now, is going to be elevated into the sky. And the plains will be raining about it. And man, one day a river is going to come out of this city. It's going to bless the nations of the earth. Man, you get to have a part in this work. It was meant to be an encouragement to them. to to, to spur them on, to give them a glimpse of the future, to spur them on in today. And as I I think about this text, I'm trying to make a large conclusionary application. Well, the text tonight specifically is prophetic and unveils a bit of maybe eschatology in God's plan. I've rehearsed this before, but let's let's do it one more time. This macro-cosmic drama... As rehearsed in Zechariah 14 is played out sometimes in small ways in my life and yours, in this sense. We stand right now, you and I, right now, we stand before God today like these people did, awaiting Christ's return. Now our understanding of that return is a little bit different than their understanding. They're waiting for this messianic kingdom we're waiting for the kingdom of God you know, in heaven to come. But like that, we're waiting. We're toiling. And, and we can ask the question, you know, when are you coming back? And we can really get caught up in all of that question. Uh, you know, I, I'm fascinated by this stuff like you are. I, the book of Revelation is extraordinary. We have to make sure we're looking through the right lens and right filter. You know, we're going to say, okay, now how's this happen? And, you know, let's talk, about, let's talk about how this earthquake comes. And where's it going to be from here to here? And, and, and it's, it's not that it's not helpful, except it's just, you know, generally not helpful. It's just fascinating. And God wants us to get in terms of scale, like just to get it. But it's not His point. He, he doesn't necessarily want us to have lots and lots of books. You know, we have this all outlined in detail. It's not that that's not a curiosity. It's just not really productive in helping you live a better life, you know. The truth is this. They were waiting for the return. And we're waiting for a return. But we, like them, have to make a decision. And the decision is this. How are we going to wait? What's waiting going to look like in your life and mine? See, really, there's only two choices for us tonight. We're His people, assuming people here tonight are saved. We know Christ is Savior. Um, Things eternal are secured. We're in Christ. Um, We are predestined one day to be conformed to His image. You know, there's a lot of those things that are settled. But still, we're waiting. So here's your two choices. We can wait like them. And they did a horrible job of waiting. The history of the nation of Israel is they were bad waiters. They're just bad waiters. They had this expectation the Messiah would come. They got that right. They, 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 they didn't know His name Yeshua, Jesus, but they, the Messiah was gonna come they, and they missed Him. But they never waited well. And they continually fell into sin and they struggled to be part of the program of God. And all they wanted was the reward at the end. They didn't want to live the life of patience in the midst of the waiting. Today, you and I can either waste these days while we're waiting, or we can be part of God's plan. We can be involved in it. We can be temple builders. We can be winning people to Christ. We can be in advance conforming ourselves to His character. We can be laying up treasures in heaven. We can be the kind of people who are living for Christ. Therefore, we're not excited about the days of the season. We're just excited that our Savior's coming back. We're just waiting for His return. Or we can just act with indifference. Or even worse, we can live in such a way that even though we're His, that we invite discipline between now and then into our lives. Hebrews chapter 12. And how, how silly is that? See tonight, if I ask you this question, do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back? There's going to be like, yeah. Okay. Well, then let's live like that. And it's not quite as big as a, yeah. <laughs> you know? But that's God's point. I'm coming back. Yes. Live like it. hmm See that's harder because it requires something of us. It requires patience and faith and grace. It takes us back to Zachariah's question to the people. When's he coming back? Well, hold on. When are you gonna be the kind of people that he can come back for? Now that's overstated, but you get the idea. His return isn't dependent on us. But Jesus posed the question, when I come back, will there even be faith on the earth? He posed the question, will there, anybody, will there, will there be anybody who's faithfully even serving me then? Evidently, this is the expectation. The parables in the Bible are the stewards. I left you in charge, and I, what do I want from you? I want you to wait. I want you to farm, and I want you to plow, and I want you to do what you can do. I want you to work. I want you to honor me. I, I, I want you to live in such a way that when I return, I can say, well done, my good and faithful servant Enter the joy of the Lord. I don't want you to be that guy I have to rebuke when I get back. I don't want you to waste your life in waiting for me. When are you going to be the people that actually live like you're the people who know that I'm coming back one day? Too often temptation is to get count up and when and ifs and, you know, how can God, you know, why isn't God doing more for me? But all the while, God may be looking at us going, I've already made my promises to you. Why don't you live in light of my promises? I I can't be better to you than I promised to be. Why so concerned about the future when you show so little concern for today? You verses 1 or 2, while Israel waited, um, God had to correct them. And no doubt the Lord would rather bless them their poor behavior isn't preventing the inevitable eschaton that's described in chapter 14. But you know what it does do? The metaphor I referred earlier, by failing to live to God, it can sure stop the rain. It can stop the rain. You understand what I'm saying by that? We're waiting. And by the way we live, it can rain on us. Or by the way we live, just like it will be for these people one day, well, we might go through a drought. Uh, none of us are gonna have a, a metaphorical rose garden. Life's never gonna be completely easy, but you can have God's blessings through life, and you can have the rain if you live that way. Well, life's hard enough, and added to it is you can have a drought. The difference is how you come and worship me. Those who come and worship me, blessing. Those who don't, no rain. Now, that's, that's a broad application, but you get the idea. That thought runs all throughout the New Testament. That it all the way back to Deuteronomy 8 again. You want to be the head or the tail. You want to be the borrower or the lender. You want to be blessed or not blessed. You want to inherit the land or not inherit the land. You want a good life or you want a hard life. Elements of that are partly out of our control. We live in a sinful world, but a big chunk of what we experience in life comes as a result of our invitation. A lot of our happiness, a lot of our joy, a lot of our even material blessing, a lot of our relationships, a lot of what we know as a church is a direct result of sowing and reaping. We can sow to get the rain, or we can sow to have none of it. Zechariah is a call. It, it, it's a way of saying the end is coming and man is it going to be glorious. It's going to be phenomenal. You want to know? Let me tell you what it's going to be like. It's going to be the God of the universe coming from heaven and putting his foot down the Mount of Olives. And it's going to cleave and Jerusalem is going to rise, and a valley is going to be made, and water is going to come from Jerusalem, and the nations are going to come, and the sun is no more, and He is going to be the light and the moon of that day. That's what it's going to be like one day. So, uh, live like that today. Live like that today. Live in light of the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message of Zechariah, and really there's no different message for us today. So let's, let's give effort to that. Let me ask you to stand tonight if you would.